This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Stop me if you've heard this one. The book and the movie version of the same story walk into a bar and order a couple tequila zombies. The book says she's not just a boat, Doc. Get it? Boat? Doc? Like, where are boat docks? Hello? Is this thing on? We return to Increment Vice today with what is maybe the most atomically dense scene of Inherent Vice's entire runtime. Binding together all of the book and the film's social, political, historical, comical, and personal thematic threads in a microcosmic knot that unifies the aesthetics of the book, such as Thomas Pynchon's penchant for seemingly impenetrable conspiranoid plots, strange character names, and wildly weird pop culture references, with that of its movie adaptation, including PTA's reliance on over-the-shoulder two-shots for massive expositional deliveries and the binding of the book's hazily paranoid politics with his own singular romanticism by overtly connecting the machinations of the Golden Fang with Doc's own heartbreak over ex-old Shasta Faye Hepworth. It is truly the most representative synthesis of these two versions of the same story, with both speaking to each other in the same wild and woolly way, Doc and maritime attorney Sancho Smilax chit-chat over tequila zombies. And helping me, and you, gentle listener, through this pot-fogged and sun-smogged sequence of sunshine noir is actor, comedian, and author of two great novels of genre crisscrossery, The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To, and Crap Kingdom, my favorite quote from either being, my imagination is something of a badass. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Increment Vice, Mr. DC Pearson. Hey, thanks, Travis. That's a, what a nice, what a lovely introduction, both of the of the film and of of me. I'm very uh, very flattered and thrilled to be on. Well, please keep vamping because I'm out of breath from okay. all of that <laughs> yeah, now. Sure, like, my face is my face is a, a deep and desperate purple. I mean, no pressure, right? The saying it's the most. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, important you, scene of the film, but you're right. You I got think a big you're one, right. kid. Yeah, you're, no you're, kidding. You're, you got to come to play. It's kind of like the yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like this. It's is... It's like the navel of the of the movie. Yes, we are picking PTA's belly button <laughs> as we speak with this scene, and it is. I feel like this is mm-hmm. kind of you know we've got some stuff to talk about before absolutely. we get into this scene proper, but I feel like I feel like this is one of the scenes that's maybe easiest to dismiss in a weird mm. way. I feel like it's. It's easy to go, oh, well, this is our exposition scene. This is catching Doc up on what the hell this boat was he just saw. This is Sanch getting us from A to B, plot-wise. And I feel like it's it's not the most surface romantic. It's not the most connected to the Shasta Fay storyline. It's not super connected in a very visceral way to the Coy Harlingen storyline. Um, and even though it uh, covers a lot of ground and kicks a lot of the tires of the Mickey Wolfman story, it's all in a very... It's once again it's just two people sitting at a table shooting the shit. And I feel like because of that, and also because it's... We're meeting Sancho again, and this is... He's almost the opposite of who he was at the beginning of the film. He's far less stoned. He's not as comic. And it is... 
I think on its surface, a very just, hey, here's some exposition. Here's, here's where we are in the movies. Everybody caught up? Okay, let's move on. That said, that's on its surface. Underneath its surface, as I said with my breathless hyperbole <laughs> at the top, I think there's so much going on in this. And I really do feel like of any, any, any scene in the film, if there is a moment where the book and the film are talking to each other and everything that makes the book the book, but all the stuff that makes the film the film and makes them separate versions of this story, I feel like this is the scene where they're sitting across the table making movie references with the names of their drinks and their and their meals, and this is where they're talking to each other. And uh, I could be wrong, but I'm not because it's my show. <laughs> but that's how I feel about it. Now, I was, the other day, creeping on your Twitter account. Sweet. As one does. And I was looking around, and I saw that when you first saw yes. Inherent Vice. Oh, gosh, I don't remember what this is going to be. Oh, yeah. Well, you said a lot of really, really unhinged <laughs> stuff. Uh, you're going to get canceled after this. Uh, when Inherent Vice, the film was released in December of 2014, you wrote of it, Inherent Vice is like a feature-length Steely Dan song, perhaps the highest compliment I can give. <laughs> now, as someone who is not the most avid Steely Dan listener, aside from that one episode of The Sopranos where Tony is dri- driving around and singing dirty work, <laughs> I want you to help me understand what you mean by that. Sure. Um, okay. I First of all, I do really like Steely Dan. I mean, I talk about things that are divisive, the movie Inherent Vice uh, <laughs> and, and Steely Dan. Um, I think that it's my sort of experience with Steely Dan, and then we can sort of go back to my experience of Inherit Vice. Oh boy, put on a pot of coffee. Um, oh wow, you're going deep already. Is I, my dad listened to them a ton when I was growing mm-hmm. up. I think it was like that music that you sometimes hear that your parents listen to that you're just like, this is the definition of adult when you're yes. growing up. Not yeah. in like a porny way, but in a like, although they are named after a dildo, right? From a uh, sex they device from. Exactly right. Um, but in a just like you hear the sound of it and it's maybe like your parents are playing it before a dinner party or whatever yeah. and you're kind of like back in your room and there was just something about it where I was like I this is grown up music and as an adult I feel like that's how I kind of rediscovered it was in listening to specifically the album Asia uh, by Steely Dan and just going like oh wow this is really cool but also it's very nostalgic for me like it's really tickling that you know spot I think I, when I was in like college maybe like right after college and it was funny because I listened to it at the time when I was I went to college in New York and I was re-listening to it and I was like, this reminds me of how it made me feel when I was a kid. And it's almost like when, back when I was a kid, I was kind of envisioning, you know, like taxis going and, and steam coming out <laughs> of grates and stuff. And this feels very New York. And then when I moved out to L.A. and also learned a bit more about Steely Dan, uh, they're, I think they're from Boston originally, but... That that album in particular, Asia, is extremely L.A. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to revisit it through that light and go like, oh, it's so incredibly. I don't know why I ever thought of New York. I mean, I guess I knew because I thought I was thinking like grownups, grownups are in tall kid, buildings. New York is New York is the grown up city. I, I That's think so. Where you yes. go when and you I, grow exactly. up, you go to New York. Precisely. <laughs> um, at least in my case, I guess. Um, and then I decided not grown up enough and moved to Los Angeles. Bless your um, heart. Someday, maybe I'll be back when I get uh, two beards, I guess, because then I'll be really grown up. <laughs> but 
I w- w- learning a little bit more about it and just kind of the sort of like it's Steely Dan in uh, which is just two guys, Walter Fagan and or no, Don Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Um, and they're in a studio and they're just like they are barely even playing on the album. It's just them kind of being a sort of like almost like daft punk or whatever, just two like musical minds, just driving these session musicians insane by being like, (laughs) okay, I know that's your 71st take of that like glockenspiel solo. Um, The person who's played on every single Motown hit of the past 20 years or whatever, but we need you to do it again because we're looking for a real, you know, like it's just them, like it's the most, and there's a reason why, it's that 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 is an album that people go back to to like test out, and it's this is a joke that um, a uh, podcaster and radio host that I really like, Tom Sharpling, makes a lot. That Steely Dan is like he does not like Steely Dan. That they are like stereo testing music, like oftentimes if you're in, and I think maybe even I might be making this up, but I want to say in Boogie Nights. I believe Don Cheadle's character when he's demonstrating the the TK four two one in the you hear stereo. That? Feel I, that? I you feel think that? he might be playing Steely Dan. I might be wrong. I might just be con- conflating those two things. But anyway, so once I moved to LA and I got back into Steely Dan, I got back into Asia in particular, re-listening to it and listening to their lyrics are a lot of kind of like seventies, very imagistic sort of. You get the feeling that these are kind of like upper middle class, upper class, druggy people who are like, despite maybe being a little bit in the, you know, at least the people they're talking about, that despite being somewhat, you know, elite or whatever you want to call it, they're also like disreputable. Like they're bad people that are on the wrong side of things. You know, maybe they've like had somebody killed or whatever. And there's also a lot of nostalgia in their music. I feel like they're they're often talking about like the old days or whatever. And there is a lot of that kind of very, it's very inherent vice. Like they're talking a lot about like, you know, your guy or your connection or your doctor or your mm-hmm. whatever. It's extremely, and I say this is somebody that has never really done a lot of drugs, it's extremely druggy. It's about drugs, but it's made by people who are like super fucking straight laced in a way. And everything, it's not like hazy druggy, it's yeah. like precise drug. I guess what I'm, it's probably cokey. Let's be honest. It's speed, <laughs> it's speedy. Um, but so that really and I guess what I was describing in terms of this and I, it's so funny. It's like I often think like if you showed or you give a human being the same stimulus over the course of several years without them realizing it, they'll probably have the exact same reaction. And when I was watching this movie, I was literally thinking I, I hadn't seen it since it came out. I was like, oh, this is so Steely Dan. So it's funny that I had that <laughs> reaction back then. But I think there's just like there's a lot of weird images. There's characters People are having weird relationships. People are kind of cruising to the other side of town. People are feeling like a little bit lonesome or alienated. And there's probably weird, again, like you said, conspiranoid stuff going on. Or maybe you're just high. Or those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Exactly. Exactly. That was a goddamn journey. <laughs> and I think Took you, you to both it. coasts. God, wow. You were, yeah, that was wild. Take a drink. Thank Take you. Take a drink. Yeah, I've earned it. You earned that. And no, you're right. And I love that you, one little thing I love that you pick out is when you mention in this film, you know, they're driving over to the other side of town. For people who don't live here, that's a big deal. Yes. And there is a lot of driving across town in this goddamn yes. movie. Not just across town. There's like, Doc, Doc Trice, Orange County, like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. 
if you don't live in L.A., let me tell you something. That is a goddamn death march from which there really <laughs> is no return. Driving from, like, Venice Beach to L.A. proper to uh, Ojai, oh, no. <laughs> I don't care Even how, in the 70s. I don't care how bad the little kid blues right. get. I'm not, I'm not driving out there. I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm sorry. Coy brought it on himself. He sold himself out. He made himself a snitch. I'm not driving to Ojai. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, it's funny. I joke about, like, it, it, Venice oftentimes are just, like, a lot of different beach communities. I, oftentimes when you live in L.A. and people come to L.A. and you don't live on the west side, People will be like, they'll be like, oh, hey, I'm in L.A. this weekend. And you'll be like, oh, cool. Where are you staying? And they'll be like, Venice. And it's like, great. See you next time. Exactly. <laughs> like if you how don't many, already live there. How, God, this is already turning into a, these smug assholes that live in L.A. with this, with its perfect weather. All my friends come to Redondo Beach and they expect me to hang out. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, D.C. Travis and I don't really like our friends is what we're learning. <laughs> wow. Well, in true Inherent Vice fashion, we're already not talking about Inherent Vice. Mm -hmm. We've covered a lot of ground so far. Absolutely. Uh, we've covered being a dick in California yep. and refusing to drive more than two miles. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to goddamn do it. Uh, and uh, Seely Dan. And now I understand. I understand your connection now. Well, let me ask you this. I'm assuming, since you like Steely Dan, mm -hmm. that you liked Inherent Vice. Love Inherent Vice. Yeah. First time, too. You it. It worked for you. It's interesting. I liked it, but it was almost like, you know, sometimes when you watch a movie and you're like, I like it, I'm going to need to see it again. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't. I, I just sort of expected, I think, because it was also coming out or, you know, around award season, whatever. I just figured, like, I'll probably watch it again and then it didn't. Did end you, up doing did you do it. The, did you do the? I'll get the screener I, when it comes when the screener comes. No, in, I'll watch I don't it. even know if I, I I I wasn't even I don't even I was mostly just like borrowing screeners from my from my friend back then. I, I don't know. I I don't think I was doing that. I think I was just like, oh, we'll probably go see it again. Also, because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Like my now wife, then girlfriend, and I. I think we saw the master like at least twice, maybe three times in theaters. Yeah. Like when it came out. Um, and so I just figured this would similarly be such a slam dunk for me. And it was like, I really loved it. And I immediately was like, I felt like I, I don't know if I, I don't want to say like I got it, but by the end I, I felt like I had a definite takeaway from it. And, but I was also like, there's some of the ins and outs of the plot that I'm going to need to see it again for it to fully gel for me on that level. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until I rewatched it this week for the podcast that I saw it again. And now I am like, oh, I, I, I love this movie that, you know, full stop. And, uh, and I want to watch it again. It's actually kind of, well, God bless you. It's, you know, it's interesting that you say that, that you, you saw it, you dug it and maybe you didn't get it. 100% on paper plot, but you probably you get the heart of it. Yeah, for sure. And you get the feeling of it. But what I think is kind of interesting about this movie is, you know, you see the film. If you don't love it, if it's not ringing your bell, if it's not singing your song and hitting all the things that you love, it is a movie that requires you to rewatch it that doesn't maybe automatically beg you to rewatch it. It doesn't invite you to come back. The way there are certain movies with the you'll see it and you're like, Oh God, I have to see this again. I I, I didn't get it all, or it'll be you kind of get it, but I got to see how it all connects. I got to see where the trick was. I got to see where the little prestige moment was, sure. where the everything lines up, and I'm and when I go into it the second time, I'm gonna see a completely different film. I don't know, and I think part of it is because the film it does have this kind of casual attitude of like, well, you can come to me, I'm but I'm I'm just right here. I'm not gonna walk over there. 
Doc might drive across Southern California, but I don't feel like the movie <laughs> makes an effort to reach across the room to you. It's more like if you dig this, you dig it, but I'm not going to invite you to come back. You have to want to come back. It also, I think there's something about it tonally that I was realizing watching it this time where it is so, and it's funny when you, you know, when you read the Wikipedia page, when you read things that PTA said about it at the time, whatever, it, and you see the way it's classified, where it's like classified as a like comedy, comedic drama or whatever, you do like it. It doesn't necessarily fully present that way when you're first watching it, especially I think if you're coming into it fully just expecting like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, mm-hmm. even though Paul Thomas Anderson movies like on up through Phantom Thread are incredibly funny in their very specific PTA way. But I do think, and I also think like maybe for some viewers, like I think especially like an older kind of like prestige viewer who's sort of like, we're going to see the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He's a film artist and he's very important. (laughs) He's never breaking out of sort of the filmic language of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie enough, I think, to just go like, this is a comedy. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the way that people might necess- might expect. But especially watching it again, I love that about it. Like, I love that it's a, in many ways, it is The Big Lebowski, but filmed, which is obviously a beautifully filmed movie by, you know, two incredible auteur filmmakers in their own right. But this is so still filmed like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie that it's never coming right out and being like, this is a broad comedy in many ways sure. about a confused hippie detective. Well, our last guest in the last episode, Jason Bailey, he was saying that it's almost like this. He said you could you could, you could could split PTA's oeuvre, which is a fun word to say. Absolutely. Uh, you could split his oeuvre in half where the early half of his career, that's one PTA. Mm-hmm. Second half, that's a second PTA. And you could define them as coke kid and weed dad (laughs) and that's hysterical you know there will be blood is the beginning of weed dad Mm. punch drunk was the farewell to coke kid interesting and what is he said you know he what he suggested was quite interesting about inherent vice is this is the film where coke kid and weed dad meet wow this is where it's got a little this is like weed dad Maybe Weed Wife has taken Weed Kids out to like the Weed In-Laws for the weekend. Right. And Weed Dad's got a little bit of Coke left from that party a couple years back. Still good. No one's around. It's going to have one last weekend, kick back, have a little bit of fun, have some friends over. And uh, Weed Dad's going to he's, he's be Coke Kid one more time, right. one, which is very appropriate for a film that's constantly looking back at youth. But I don't think he's wrong, and I think that uh, – what what also throws people, I think, is that exactly. You go in and you look at this movie and you're like, okay, I'm watching a kind of latter-day, icy, Kubrickian and precise PTA movie. And then there's a dick and a fart joke. Right. But it's presented the way he would present it in something like Phantom Thread if Phantom Thread happened to have dick and fart jokes, right. which it doesn't. And I think it throws people, I think especially, and I've said this a million times on this show, I'm, I love them, but the trailers for this film were straight up like Zucker Brothers movie. Mm. Like this, this it, it looks like it's going to be, you know, from the files of Police Squad, and you hear the Naked Gun theme start to play. And aside from 
uh, Josh Brolin occasionally filleting a banana, and even that is done with melancholy. <laughs> it's 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 really not. It's it's I find it to be a very funny comedy, but it is not an outright. This movie is designed to make you just have an aneurysm with laughter as you're watching right. it, and I think that throws a lot of people. I don't think they know. I think there were a lot of people that came into this movie and didn't know what to do with it, and didn't know where to put it in their head because it would be funny. And then there would be a 20-minute stretch of just sadness. Yes. And then it would be funny again, and then there would be the world's most harrowing consensual sex scene that you've ever seen. <laughs> and then it would go back to the jokes. Right. And what are we supposed to do with that? Well, how do we compartmentalize that? And especially when we all thought we were just going to go see a funny R-rated cop movie. I think people walked into this movie thinking they were going to get what we later got with something like The Nice Guys, which is wonderful. Yes, right. But it's easier to know where to put The Nice Guys. Yes, for sure. And I just, again, to to, to go back to that, you know, people, I don't think this is why you didn't return to it, but I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of other people had a hard time returning to it was, well, I don't don't even know what the fuck that was. To quote a a line from that last scene, I don't know what I just saw. Right. (laughs) And, And that's, I think, what people had the hard, that and the fact that so much of the information in the film is presented to us as it's presented to Doc, which is to say extraordinarily hazy, hazily, yes. without ever totally getting your arms around all of it at once. Right. Doc never knows at any one time the entirety of what the hell he's enmeshed in. And similarly, I think the film, we're never entirely sure what's going on more than what's happening in this scene and then maybe the one we just saw. Like, right. in, this, like in, in, in our scene proper... We're like, oh yeah, there was there was a boat in that fog, and now they're talking about that boat, I guess. But then if you, I think a lot of people are like, now who's Mickey Wolfman again? Now who is that? Is that is that Eric Roberts? He was in a picture in a newspaper for a second. Is that <laughs> that's him? Right. right. And yeah, and I think it just it it keeps people at arm's length if you're not in love with the genre. And I think in most also it doesn't. And this is such a was such a funny thing, kind of reseeing it, but. In most noirs, like A leads to B leads to C leads to D, mm-hmm. and then that's when you kind of go like somebody's like, "Well, hey, that actually leads back to the thing I learned at A." You yeah, know, it what turns I mean? out there were parallel tracks yeah, this whole time. Whereas with Doc's journey, I feel like he sort of will get a mission or a case, mm-hmm. and then he'll go, and then somebody will be like, "Hey, but also on an unrelated thing, what about that?" And it'll be like, "Wait, that also relates to the thing." And then somebody else comes out of left field and is like, <laughs> "Hey, what about?" And then he's like, "Wait, that also relates to that in a way that also I think contributes to his building paranoia." Yeah. But also that that sense of like, "Am I crazy or is all this stuff super connected?" But it's not a super linear thing. No. And on top of that, in true Pinchonian fashion, in a way that would make David Foster Wallace's head spin. It's not just like it is in the detective movies where there's case A, and then you, as a side thing, you know, someone comes into your office and offers case B, you take both, and you're like, oh, these are two, they're running on parallel tracks and they inter- they, they interlace together. As you said, there's a case A, there's a case B, <laughs> and then you can just see Pinchon just laughing going, and there's a case C, yes. and there's a D, and there's an E, and there's an F, and they're all related. <laughs> right. And that's another thing. That, that, that Pinchon does in the book that when you put it in the film, I think a lot of viewers are like, what? No, 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 no. Okay, we've got the ex-girlfriend and the current millionaire real estate developer boyfriend. That's it. Oh, or no, right. that, that's one. Okay, I can handle that. I can dig that. 
And then we have the joke where Tariq Khalil comes in with his missing name, and you're like, oh, okay, this is where Wolfman, uh, this is this is where they connect. I see. And then you have a dead body show up outside of a trailer, <laughs> and then you have this, and then you have this sad detective with his bananas, right? And then you have this family, this kind of hippie family. Uh, with a missing sax player husband, and then you have the sax player husband with his own thing, with this, with this mysterious organization, and then you have a boat that might be that, or it's a building, or it's a cabal of dentists, <laughs> or it's a CIA-funded heroin trade, mm-hmm. or it's maybe all of those. Right. As you said, it, or maybe it's all of those things, <laughs> or maybe it's none of those things, and this is all just Doc pinballing around these these random happenstances. It's it works. It's 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 pure Thomas Pinchon. But I think there's a reason also why there haven't been a, a whole heck of a lot of Thomas Pinchon adaptations. Sure. Cinema. But I do love that. I do love that there's an A and a B and a C and a D. Yes. And speaking of which, did you ever read the book? I have not, no. No, I, I would really, I would especially like to now. I've only read one Pinchon book, which is V, mm-hmm. I think is his first one. Yeah. And have you read it? Yeah. I mean, so it's the E, it's the... I actually think it's the second easiest to get your arms around because it's so thin. But right. that's not really thin. That's crying a lot. Uh, Forty nine. I've read V. I like V. Uh, but uh, I will say, I, pre- I obviously I prefer Vice. Sure. But go ahead. Talk but it's v also like me. I mean, it's so interesting. I well, V. It's been a long time. I read it when I was in college. But it's like his first book. I think it was like nineteen sixty, early sixties. And it's got, it's almost not even hippie, it, you know, it's not really that yet, because that wasn't even a thing. It's like more like beat, yep, I feel yep, like, yep. where it's very, it's it's less people being like out there and druggy and super crazy and more people being like, wait a minute, man, the straight world, maybe something's not right there. Like it's somebody <laughs> having the first thought of that in a weird way, where it's like, I, fe- I I'm going to get so much of the plot details wrong. Basically, all I remember of it is the main character who feels like a very sort of like author surrogate-y, mm-hmm. like first mm-hmm. novel kind of character is enlisted. I think he has like a straight job, but then kind of by, I think like it, some we- weirdo New York connection gets enlisted to hunt alligators in the sewers and then the main other thing i remember is Mm -hmm, that there's mm -hmm. a almost kind of like weird proto ai or computer or mannequin or something you're never quite clear on it comes up in inherent vice that's like oh interesting oh that's awesome that's like ticking away in the background and Mm -hmm. you're never really quite it's sort of like in like the the movie akira where you keep sort of cutting back to like early on you keep just like cutting back to like there's this weird cult and they're all (laughs) chanting and you're like why what's the connection like it's like that and i'm not even sure it ever fully connects i don't remember but um those are the things I remember, and I just remember thinking, like, "Hey, this is very cool." And then, to, or it's it's basically just that the Simpsons quote of like uh, Homer watching Twin Peaks, where he just goes, "Brilliant." I have, I have no, no idea, idea what's what going, going on. on. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of my my V my feeling on V. And I've always meant to read like the the biggies like Crying of Lot Forty Nine and Gravity's Rainbow, but I just haven't gotten around to them. But in reading in watching this. I went and read the Wikipedia page. I read the Wikipedia page for the book without without getting into too much of the plot details. And then I read the Wikipedia pages 
for a couple of his other books. And it was mm-hmm. interesting to me how many of them, especially in like the, because he had a really big gap. Yes. But then like kind of when he sort of reemerges in the 90s and 2000s, and I guess he was on the same island that Terrence Malick was on. I was going to say, on. he did a Terry Malick <laughs> yeah, He yeah, made the sure. Terry Malick move. Absolutely. And in with weirdly similar timing, I feel like. Um, he reemerges, and a lot of the books I feel like at that point are have something to do with like the lost idealism of the 60s. Mm. I feel like one of them was very heavily that I think Paul Thomas Anderson was saying he was thinking about adapting like around the time of like Boogie Nights. I think there's like th- uh, there's three. There's, oh, there's interesting. this one, and he often has spoken of uh, Mason and Dixon and Vineland. Yes, Vineland, I think, was yeah. the one I was thinking of where that one was very much, I guess, about sort of like. Children of the '60s who are now in the '80 in Reagan's yes, '80s, exactly, yeah, which was very interesting, and a lot of them had to do with like COINTELPRO. Like a lot of them had to do with sort of like were infiltrate the the FBI or sort of the the I guess the the deep state for lack of a better word is like trying to il- infiltrate the counterculture, yeah. and in many ways, and I think there's a couple of like books out now that I've been meaning to read. Some I think are more reputable than others that are all about like nonfiction books that are all about COINTELPRO and like that kind of weird sort of like how much stuff in the counterculture are they responsible for? Did they like create Manson with like a mind control machine? There's I a don't... great book that a, <laughs> uh, a previous guest uh, talked about it on his episode it, and I read it. It's a great book. Uh, um, uh, chaos. It's about, yeah, that's it's the about, one. Uh, this is the Manson more reputable and, yeah, one I'm thinking of. That's the grown up book yes, because even yes, the yes. author says, is any of who, who he throws a lot at the wall, right? E- evidence of potential things, right? Without proof, and he says, "Do I say that any of these things are true? Absolutely not. I have no idea, right? I just know that the official version and Helter Skelter and, and a race war for the Beatles that was bullshit, right? I just know that I and that's a lot. So much of which feels like that that feels so inherent vice to me, which is I don't know what's real, or to quote. Doc and Coy, I don't know what I just saw. <laughs> I just know that what they're telling me I saw isn't real. Right. That's not that's not what it is. It's more than a boat. Or to quote today's scene, it's not just a boat, Doc. It's which, much more than that. Which is so interesting. We're getting so inherent by sea already, just in terms of the <laughs> fast and furious weird associations that don't necessarily mean anything. But, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, it's so interesting to me that you mentioned the, like, helter-skelter, whatever, that doesn't all add up, which they also kind of touched on in the last season of Mindhunter, which is the best show ever. But oh, isn't, it, isn't it though? Oh my God, so good! But that's, that's, that's a, a second. That's a second exactly. Um, but they, what was I gonna say? Oh, just that, like Vincent Bugliosi, right? Who mm-hmm. wrote? Who was the prosecutor? Yep, and, wrote and then Helder wrote Helter Skelter. That obviously, sort of like it feels like even more than the case, probably like propagated a lot of yep, that yep. that mythology or whatever truth. I don't know. Love the book, but. Then I feel like in the second half of his career, he wrote that book. Um, it's like called like Reclaiming History. That's yeah. the like two bajillion page book about the JFK assassination mm-hmm. where he basically is just like he's he's just literally being like, I remember reading the like I haven't read it, but I remember reading the like jacket flap thing of it and him being like, and I've looked at all the documents or whatever. And I'm Vince Bugliosi and I'm telling you, Oswald did it and yeah. he acted alone. And he's just like, I now I'm going to whatever. And it's so is interesting that he is this guy who, on the one hand, it's like he sort of unleashed. He didn't do the Manson murders, obviously. I'm not saying that. And let's just say even uh, just taking all of the Manson stuff at face value, which I honestly don't know anything else about other alternate theories, so I kind of do. <laughs> he unleashes 
not literally Manson, but in many ways unleashes and codifies the Manson mythology, right? Exactly, exactly. And that and the paranoid underpinnings yeah, that gird that story, exactly, and that make us look for those those narratives exactly and then he spends clearly the second half of his career there's always something so interesting to me about people where they unleash the genie and then they try to put it back in the bottle Do everything they can to, to to contain it and to dismiss it and that's what it feels like he was doing with i think he died a few years ago i don't he i think he's, a, he's in the past in the past tense but you're not going to get sued don't okay worry. but then tried to with his sort of magisterial jfk book yeah sort of trying to walk you know, like refute a lot of the conspiracy stuff, go like, okay, I realized that the JFK assassination then unleashed obviously this huge national trauma and national loss of innocence. And then in trying to make sense of it, people have come up with all these conspiracy theories and I'm now trying to refute all that and just go like, it was just a random thing that happened. Let's like undo the 60s. I see it's Leslie all Nielsen good. make a gun. Make, there's nothing to see here <laughs> yes. as like a building explodes. Right. By, go home. There's right. nothing to see. Yes, exactly. This is not happening. Yes. What you are seeing <laughs> right. is not happening. Yeah, exactly. Where it is sort of like, oh, you want to put the 60s back in the bottle. Ex- that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. Exactly wants to put the 60s back in a bottle and guys this is the stuff you can talk about even when you're not high <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know if travis is high or not I, but no, speaking no, for myself no. hey i'm just know. drinking a, a water with some hydration stuff in it yeah we're neither coke dad or no. excuse me we're neither coke kid nor weed dad that's right right now we're just a couple of guys exactly. a couple of fellas on a friday night <laughs> talking about manson and talking about Pro Pro. And, but uh, well, speaking of which you know it's fascinating that you bring that up because that is such a huge well, it's a much, much, much larger thread in incre- inherent increment vice the book. In, in, <laughs> there should be in inherent vice the book. Coentelpro does rear its head up again in the film. You really only get it. You really only get it in the FBI. The the lone FBI. Shout out Tim Simons. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, when he's bracing Doc and. Uh, his partner's like, you know, as a Cointel, uh, Cointel Pro informant, you can make three hundred dollars. Um, <laughs> yes, throughout absolutely. the book, Bigfoot is constantly trying to get Doc to, to be a snitch, mm. and it's, it doesn't even feel malevolent. Sure, it's, it's and in retrospect, you could almost view it as him wanting to be closer to Doc, which right. I, I, I wouldn't doubt. Like, there's a, there's a brotherhood there that I don't think either man wants to totally acknowledge, <laughs> sure. but how how alike they are and yeah. their sadness and their longing for a partner who has gone from their life and an era that has gone from their lives. But that is such a Pinchonian thread that does wind its way through the book, that COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO, snitch and snitch and snitch. And, and like you said, that idea, and it, and it, it does come up in its own way in the, in the film. How much of the counterculture is really the counterculture? Yeah. And how much is, how much is a, it, how much of it is a vigilant California plant right. there to get street cred so that he can, then go out on then go and work himself into any kind of subversive outfit that he wants and he's got he's got the bona fides because he told nixon to he told nixon to fuck himself on some <laughs> college campus yeah and uh that's such a terrifying threat yes especially in today today's day and age when right it feels like there's no one that you can trust anymore and i feel like so much of to connect that even further back to what you were saying because god i am an i am an incre- increment vice professional here we're going to circle back we're going to when you were talking about how so much of what we were watching is you can't you can't trust what your eyes see you can but you 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 know what it's not and how much of pension's later books seem to be the an older man looking back 
in anger and seeing like, boy, we fucked up. Yeah. And that's and so right. many of that's what so many of his later period books are, are just that. And as crass as that sounds, that's it. it it's 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 Captain America and Easy Rider. It's Peter Fonda and Easy Rider looking at the fire and saying, we blew it. We blew it. And that's what makes the book so haunting to me is it is someone of Pinchon's eloquence and intellect looking back going, God, we just fucked this up so bad. It wasn't the Fang. It wasn't the bad guy. Like, it was us working with them and not and not ever knowing it. And it was them being a part of us and us being too naive to recognize right. that it was too late before, like, even before the Kennedys and MLK were killed, like, it was too late. Like, it was, the deed, the deal was done. Ugh. And that, and what I think is so fascinating, maybe you will too, I'm sure people listening are going to get sick of this because they've heard me say it so many times, but that's what I think the magic of these two versions of this story existing separate from one another, I think that's what the magic of them is, is that the book is an older man looking back at the 1960s and the death of a promise and the death of a dream and looking back in anger and using a a romantic relationship as a metaphor, a breakup as a metaphor for that. What I so love about PTA's film and why I love it even more than the book is it's a look at a broken country or excuse me, rather it is a look at a romantic relationship and it uses the death of the sixties as a metaphor for that. So it's a total inversion of what right. PTA is doing, but saying the same thing. Yes. Which again, again, look at, well, look at what a professional I am. Everyone <laughs> bringing it back to where we were at the beginning, which is that's this scene. It's both versions of this story. The, the, heart, so much the heartbreak, the romantic heartbreak and the, the, the political uh, disillusionment about where we are. It's both sides just talking to each other. And before you and I watch this scene, yes. we're going to talk a little bit more about Inherent Vice in general. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your Twitter account. Great. Uh, and again, you're, you might risk getting canceled here. I don't know. We'll see. Actually, you won't. You wrote... Same day that you saw the movie. <gasps> yeah. I don't, and I love that you don't know, you don't remember no. what you wrote. So you are just <laughs> sitting so here no. like rapping. I think terror. a lot of Twitter users like, can probably relate to like, this feeling of like, oh, like, fuck. You're, you're like, looking, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure I didn't ask for anyone in Congress to be beheaded right. or anything like yeah. that. Well, you never know. We'll, we'll find right. out. This We'll find out next on Incurrent Vice. <laughs> you wrote, Paul Thomas Anderson, serving up perfect metaphors for the American experience since 1996. Oh, I like that. Okay, cool. <laughs> Good job, me. <laughs> Which I so agree with because, as I said, this 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 connects also back to something from the last episode, which is that I think it's going to be funny that I'm going to accuse anyone of projecting something on PTA's films because I've got a podcast <laughs> about inherent bias. <laughs> it's literally what I've been spending hours doing is projecting myself and that that big long-winded <laughs> opinion I just gave you on inherent vice but I feel like sometimes viewers maybe over project onto the master and especially there will be blood and hey if we get in a fight over this that's okay I hear you breathing I hear it but I think they over project onto the master and especially there will be blood the idea that these films are capital G capital A capital S grand American <laughs> statements mm. about America. Mm. <laughs> That's a deep mm. uh, Because just because they feature oil and like a hucksterist version of capitalism, to me, the master is just how badly you can want someone who is wrong for you. 
That's that's the, as I've said so, I, another thing I've said so many times on the show. Every time I watch The Master, I just say, just fuck. Just you'll feel so much better. <laughs> just get it out of the way, mm-hmm. guys. That's, yeah, that's yeah. all you want. That's all, right. Just, you'll feel so much. I know. Better. And you'll probably like them less the next day. Just get it out of your system. <laughs> uh, and I feel like, and, and I will say that I, I don't mean to, to denigrate the master. It's more than it's. It's, it's a true love story, and I, and I love it so. But come on, guys, really, just sleep together. And the movie's over. And then, with there will be blood. I see, I watch that movie and I see I see Daniel Plainview and his little boy. And how he loses the humanity that connects him to that boy, uh, but Inherent Vice does now. Now that I've said all that, right, and called out everybody, yes, Inherent Vice to me does feel like the grand American statement right. from PTA. If there is, I don't think he's a filmmaker that's actually interested in that in the least, right. You know, I feel like I if you were to say Grand American Statement, he'd be like, oh, geez, I don't know. I just wanted to make a beach movie, you know? Just <laughs> sure. Get some yes, Neil yes, Young yes. and you right. know, some set design. Right. Uh, right. Grand American he, Statement, that's a lot to chew I do think I feel like he is the, like, that virtuosic guitar player, like, stoner kid in your high school where it's just like, they just, like, are amazing and they just rip out this thing where you're just like, oh, my God, this. Uh, the, imagine the pain this guy has felt. Imagine the whatever. And then you're like, they're like, oh, you just want to go get a taco or? Or yeah, whatever. Yeah. You're like, what did you? What was that? What was that? And he's like, I don't know, just playing around some. I, but you're like, I know you know. I know you're good. You I, know you're good. I'm not gonna name names. Uh-huh. I have. I I know. I've spoken with people who are very close with him, and have literally said things like, "So you know that you're a genius? Like, do you know? Like, genius? I don't know. That's a that's a big word, man. I'm just I'm just making movies and just just trying to have a good time, you know. <laughs> and you're like, and you look at someone that says, "How? What? No." <laughs> but he's, he's, he's nah, man. Just it. But my my point being, before I digress into sure. my my tepid PTA impression any further, is that this to me does feel like the grand American right. statement, even if it's not intentional. I think right. too much. I think too much of the the big statement is built into its DNA uh, by by pension that you can't you can't not have some of that in there. Right. But when I watch this movie, and while I lo- you know I am a sucker for the detective film, and I am a sucker especially for the sub 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 genre of the detective film of the loser detective who does one good thing right <laughs> and sure the sub 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 mm-hmm. genre of where the one good thing isn't even that big right like in this case you know doc's not going to bring out the thing he's just going to bring one dad back to his family right while i love that and i love idea stories about redemption and lost love and kind of looking back at your life and and reassessing you know I love all of that, and that's why I come back. But every time I do come back, it's hard not to look at Inherent Vice's America and see a lot of familiarity, a For lot sure. of familiar things. Yeah, you know, it's hard to watch the news today and right. not go, "It's that goddamn Golden Thing." <laughs> yeah, there it is. There they are. It's, right. And and like the Golden Thing, they're right there in front of us, and they're saying. This thing you're looking at, it's not the thing you, it's it's not what you're looking at. It's not yes. the thing you think this is. It's this is this whole of it. Don't worry about this. Uh, this is actually this is what it is. And you look at it and you're like, I don't know. It doesn't look like that to me. But okay, it doesn't look like fake news to me. But if you're telling me it is, I guess I'm supposed to believe that. And yeah, I, I just not to get all super depressing on a no, Friday night because we're having such a blast. Right. Well, I remember it's funny about I guess you would just call them like Trump era like movies, right? Uh, you know, to to put it bluntly, I remember I hate, it was. I hate that his name comes. Up I know. On this show. It I was <laughs> here. We are. Um, uh, I guess like post 2016 movies, if you want to call mm-hmm. them that, or more mm-hmm. like 2016, because I feel like that was also like the entirety of 2016 felt we like we were already on the elevator of the gallows. Yes, in 2016. felt like inherent, felt like inherent vice. But 
it was interesting. I could have sworn, just like mood wise, like I that this movie came out in 2016. Like I kind of right. knew that it didn't. I, I right. sort of a little bit knew that it was before that. But I just remember feeling, especially the first time you watch the movie and um, and Doc finally, you know, stumbles upon uh, uh, Wolfman at the retreat and he and Eric Roberts is like, go away, go away, little hippie, go away, go away. You know, just kind of like just the super sadness of that, like yeah. just seeing this guy who kind of like saw he kind of achieved redemption or he was about to. And then everyone around him was like, no, you're worth way more to us as this person. We have exactly. everything yeah. riding on you. We have everything. And then, like, he gets sort of plowed under. And he kind of knows it, too. Yeah. And he gets sort of, like, pulled back in. Just that. And then, like, con- con- comparing that to, like, the sort of end of the movie where there's this feeling almost of, like, with returning returning um, Owen Wilson to his family, Um there's a feeling or even, you know, kind of a little bit, although it's obviously more complicated, but with Doc and Shasta getting back together, not getting back together, whatever, that Doc kind of has this takeaway of like, at the end of the day, I can't control all this other stuff and I can't even control the people in my life, I guess, nor should I want to, but it's just about the people. It's about the people around me. That is ultimately the thing that maybe I need to try to focus on. And I think I'm I'm getting off a little bit on a tangent here, but basically, like I remember feeling at the time, the sort of ennui of that, but also the the sort of like weird kind of like battered idealism and battered like hopefulness of that that I I felt at the end of the movie watching it the first time, that I could have sworn I was already having the kind of like deep dark 2016 and after <laughs> feelings that I associate with that time. And so to learn that it was two years before and I was already kind of in that place and I can't even put together for myself exactly why, I just think like, oh, fuck, we were there longer than we thought. Yeah. Like, psychically, that was all building up. It's like I said, that's exactly what goes on in the book, which is Pynchon going, no, 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 no. This didn't happen when the Kennedys died. This right. didn't happen in 68 and sympathy for... We were, we were always fucked. We were always screwed. <laughs> right. What the fix he, was in. What he's angry about in the book is not that the dream broke. It's that they looked around at that era and believed a dream could come true in that setting to begin with. That they didn't see, oh no, like the fix was in so much, right. so much earlier than all of this. Like we were just on a stage playing a game. Like the again. All of the stuff that we called counterculture, how much of this was like cooked up between uh, guys that look like Bigfoot Bjornson in a room, chain smoking, <laughs> sure. and, yeah. and, and like, and we're going to put this guy in Vigilant California. We're going to have him say, fuck you to Nixon on TV. You know, we'll get it past standards and practice, practices. Don't worry. You know, stuff like that. Yes. And him looking back going, God, we never saw it. We never goddamn saw it. And so it's it's rather appropriate that you can watch a 2014 film and go, Fuck, we never saw it coming, right. did we? Because, and, and I agree with you. I will, I will watch that movie. And I've actually thought of, although I think Mickey Wolfman has far more humanity with Eric Roberts' like five minute, in, insanely gorgeous and empathetic portrait where he goes through an entire rainbow of emotion. I, I, I actually think that you know he has far more humanity than our current president. But I do see that character, and I do think of where of who is in, who is running the show right now. And I do think, Christ, we never saw it coming. And it was right here. It was right here in a 2014 movie. 
it was right here in a book written in tw- uh, 2009. It was all there. It was and it was screaming at us. It's all that it was already everything was set in stone. All the pl- all the dominoes had already been lined up, and the first one had already been knocked down. It was just so far away. We didn't we didn't realize it was going to touch the ones that we're sitting on now. Oh yeah, no, I mean it's it's so uh, it is extremely depressing. But also, <laughs> I do think like to bring it back to PTA a little bit, and like you were saying, like people reading too much into his you know like particularly the master and there will be blood and going like well this is about oil and so and this is about religion and so it must be about america it's about, or about hucksterism it's about it must be about yeah exactly that i do think i don't know there's something so neat where i almost wonder like when he's first going into these ideas whether it's sort of exploring a scientology like religion and sort of then going back and exploring you know l ron hubbard and the sort of like very interesting, weird milieu that he came from or exploring, you know, maybe, you know, being inspired probably, I'm assuming, by sort of like Bush and and Iraq and whatever. And then looking back and going like, oh, oil by Upton Sinclair. OK, I'm reading it. And then like I do think he starts. I wonder if he doesn't still start out in the same place that we're all ultimately we want these things to stay about <laughs> in a weird way. Well, you know, what's what's interesting about There Will Be Blood is uh, where that idea, the reason he adapted that book. If, well, according to oh, him. Yes, I, is, I know. What he, I think yeah, he was please. he was in the UK doing press for Punch Trunk and he said he was just feeling lonely and homesick. And he was at a bookstore, and he was, <laughs> it's 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 a, it's so cute how childlike this sounds. Right. But he's like, I was in a bookstore, and I saw Upton Sinclair's oil, and it had a picture of California on the front, and I and I was so <laughs> homesick for because he's a, he's right. a Cali, he, sure, he's a Valley boy, yeah, right? And he saw that, and he's like, I just I, I bought it because I was homesick, and so I started reading, and I was able to read about California, and so I start you know I saw that, and I was like, hey, and he, you know of course he's he's a big fan of Treasure of Sierra Madre, and and I think he saw like. I think that that light went off in his head. He was like, "Hey, I could make a I could make a Sierra Madre without this," but it, but I, you know, I think it's funny that we make it like, "No, that's this is our generation's network." Right. This, the, this is really sticking it to us and telling it how telling us how it is. And to me, it's a homesick guy writing about uh, a father who who lets go of his kid. Right. Oh no, for sure. I think I think it's it's interesting. I don't know, you know, or even like in that case, in the case of Upton Sinclair, as oil. I'm like, well, the only reason, even if Paul Thomas Anderson is true, he bought it because of a picture of California on the front, which is hilarious because it reminds me of that story about, I can't remember, I think it's the lady from Shanghai where Orson Welles was like on the phone with some financier and they were like, we're not going to give you any more money for whatever movie you're on right now. And he's like, no, 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 but I'm going to give you a great picture uh, next. It's going to be, uh, I'm adapting this great novel called, and he sees it on like a dime store rack and he's like, the lady from Shanghai. It's by so-and-so and it's so good. And then he had to read it and be like, oh, okay, I got to punch true. this up. I know, you exactly. Get, to, yeah, too good to check, right? But I, it's like, oh, I feel like that was probably in a bookstore in whatever, you know, 2004, whenever that was. Because of the Iraq war. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, because somebody was like, this is actually some sort of like bookstore employee was like, this is, it goes back to this and oil and whatever. <laughs> I, I, I I genuinely think that is true. But then we all make it about other stuff because we need it exactly. to be about that. Exactly. And it is about greed and it is about all these things. But it's like, I have found myself going into his movies being like, I can't wait for this to be about the textual subject matter that it never is <laughs> it never, and i and it's is. like at a certain point we have to stop asking it to be because i do think he finds these really interesting milieus and he soaks in them but then he uses them to tell i think ultimately very simple stories that i think almost always are just about like all you need is love he's, you know what i mean he said it which best is great on mark Marin's show 
when uh, I got it. Was it was it Punch Drunk? I think it was Punch Drunk. Where Marin's like, "So Punch Drunk, you know what? What's that? What is that? What's that about?" And PT just starts laughing. He's like, "It's about love, baby. <laughs> it's yeah, about love." Right. Yes. And I think that's his. his yeah. To use that great word, that's his Uber. That's his film. Yeah. Every one of his movies is about how we love the people who we're not born into. I think all of his films right. are about when you meet people in the second half of your life, you're not connected to them by chains of DNA of any sort, and you just pull them into your life and how you deal with it. Well, Magnolia aside, I met, spoke, right. too, spoke too soon. Right. That's only because there's 80 fathers in that movie. Yes. <laughs> it's the, but it's the uh, that, that's Avengers his, yeah. Endgame of fathers. <laughs> it's the Avengers Endgame of bad dads. Yes, that's right. A Coke dads. Yes. Weed dads. And yet, all no, sorts of not, dads. And yet Chris Cooper's not in it, which is weird. You know the I ultimate like I, ultimate I, bad dad. You got to have Chris exactly. Cooper in your movie. Right. The soul. One of the failings of Magnolia is just no, no Chris Cooper bad dad. Special edition. Let's get it going. <laughs> that would be a four hour version yes. of the film. But yeah, it's it, all his movies. It's about love, and it's about how we either connect or push away from the people that we find love with as an adult, and either we are terrified because they love us, like Punch Drunk, or we're terrified because of how they've hurt us, like Magnolia, or. We're terrified of how we're going to hurt them. Like, I think there's a lot of that in The Master. And, or it's something like this where it's just, I feel like in, of, of all of his two, all of all of his films you could pair together, I think Inherent Vice and The Master go best together because at its heart, strip away all the, strip away all the scaffolding that gets us from A to B. Both films are really about how much you long for someone that is clearly not your someone, but for whatever reason you've attached to them and right. you, you do love them. And maybe it's like in the masters because they complete something that you can't do. You know, master it has a level of control that Freddie Quell never will. But Freddie Quell has a wildness that master so desperately wants for him not to even exploit, but just to have in his life. He wants that edge. Similarly, I think there is something in Doc that Shasta does love, and I think there's a lot in Shasta that Doc loves, but they're just not great together. There's they're on different karmic thermals. Oh, great line, right? Son of a bitch. He's out doing me at my own show. <laughs> I listened to the soundtrack on the way over, and it has a lot of quotes in it. It's got those, kind it's of got those down. great sort of liege quotes. Yeah. But yes, it, it's, it's, it's true. that the, I, I do think those two films uh, stand well together, and I do think that we maybe overdo The Master and There Will Be Blood. But again, if, you, if ever there was going to be a grand American statement from PTA, I think you find it right here in this movie. Right. Everything you need is right here. And unfortunately, everything we could have used... Yeah, about six years ago was right here <laughs> in this movie but you know no one saw the goddamn thing except you and me and like a handful of others you should have seen it. you should have gone back should have gone back time. twice you would have <laughs> gone back twice things are a lot different on that note let's you and me actually watch this let's do we're it supposed to talk about we'll be right back standing inside of meet the schooner golden fang out of charlotte amelie where is that u.s virgin islands bermuda triangle close enough she has a tendency to show up here in the middle of the night. No running lights, no radio traffic. See, the problem with this vessel is trying to find out anything. People back off, change the subject, and get real creepy. The owners are listed as a consortium in the Bahamas. The real name isn't really the Golden Fang. She was originally a fishing boat named Preserved. Then after World War II, she was bought by Burke Stodger. Burke Stodger, Burke, Burke Stodger, the actor? 
45 caliber piss off or something? Movie star. He gets blacklisted because of his politics and branded communist. So he takes the boat, splits the country, which is where your Bermuda Triangle comes in. Hi, I'm Clarinda. How can I help you? Uh, well, I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna have the house and chauvie loaf to start and um, Del Rey fillet. Can I get that deep fried in beer batter? It's your stomach. What can I get for you, little buddy? Mm, I'll take the jellyfish teriyaki croquettes and the eel trapatoria, please. Okay. And to drink, gentlemen, you're gonna want to get good and fucked up before this meal. That's for sure. I have some recommendations. Maybe the uh, tequila zombie. You make it too. All right. Thank you. So, so Burke's blacklisted, takes the boat, splits the country. Somewhere between San Pedro and Papiti, the boat disappears. Till one day, a couple years later, the boat and the owner suddenly reappear. You dig? Mm-hmm. The preserved is in the opposite ocean off of Cuba. And Burke Stodger, on the front page of the Daily Variety, in an article reporting his return to pictures, in a major motion picture called Comic Confidential. Oh, so Burke's working again. And his politics have miraculously changed. And the ship? Man, they removed any traces of soul she once had. It's a horror story. Are you mostly involved with the boat? She's not just a boat, Doc. She's much more than that. so interested. But why are you? That story I heard the other night, something about a smuggling angle. And the story you heard, did it happen to include Mickey Wolfman? Not so far. Why? Well, according to Scuttlebutt, shortly before he disappeared, Mickey Wolfman was seen taking the Golden Fang out for a three-hour tour. Or should I say, a three-hour tour. And uh, was he accompanied by his lovely companion? My fucking ex-old Chastafane. I know, I know she is. But Doc, I thought you were done with all that sad bullshit. Listen, did everybody make it back, okay? Nobody was pushed overboard or like that? Actually, the word I'm hearing is that Mickey Wolfman might not be as missing as we think. Like gone, but not gone. Man, you don't love this. No. The rumor is that the Department of Justice is trying no, to... No, 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 no. Here you go. You. The word I'm here is that the Department of Justice is trying to broker a Vegas deal for him. Doesn't compute. Say again. Vegas Wolfen. FBI stuff. They need somebody else on the strip who's not Italian. You dig? Like Howard Hughes when he bought the Desert Inn. Howard Hughes was Italian? No. They want white people. They want white Anglo owners on the strip. Who better than Mickey Wolfman? <laughs> I was I was just saying to you, I love this this PTA flourish of knowing you're laying way too much exposition on an audience that's probably just as confused as Doc is in this scene. And so you have your character just go, okay, 
FBI stuff. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Okay, so <laughs> okay, I got you. I got you. I got you. <laughs> but here we are with uh, Doc and Sanch at a diner that goes unnamed in the film. Mm-hmm. In the book is called the belaying pin. <laughs> a belaying pin is a metal pin used on sailing ships to secure lines of running rigging, which is fitting because it's in this scene that the film begins to secure the presence of the just introduced Golden Fang to the film's plot and explain that she's not just a boat she's not just a boat doc. It's much more than that. So we get pretentious on this show. Yes. We get real pretentious. But at the same time, as I said, we also get goofy and as I, as I was saying earlier about how this is about uh this scene is so much of Pynchon. It's almost like Pynchon and PTA are sitting at the de- at the table in this scene for me because I love when they're ordering all those meals uh you know the doc orders the Il Travatore, yes. which is Il Travatore is a famous opera uh, about witchcraft and generational vengeance. And they both order tequila zombies and a pension movie that he enjoys, or a movie that Pynchon enjoys is To Kill a Zombie. I was wondering about that. I didn't and, know. I mean, I, I could tell. I was like, I think that's a pun that means yeah. like to kill a zombie, but I, mean, I didn't know that was a movie. This is straight up like reading. It's it's like reading a, a pension novel with all that is just so rife and riddled with illusions right. and pop culture you know that's like a layered lattice that you know overlays all of his characters lives and it's it's right here and, and no other scene does it quite as well i think or quite as deep as this is but it is to me this is like the the, the author and the director shooting the shit about this movie and it's almost like pension is going did you just it's just fbi stuff yes <laughs> FBI stuff. also it's funny that it is the funny i think one of the funnier mo, mo, most overtly comedic scenes in the movie with the like puns and the weird food and the waitress is just being super direct yes and all of the like you know just like how do you use italian you know like all of the very like baffled you know uh reactions from joaquin phoenix but it's also a where they're laying down the most exposition and then b also i think as you as you alluded to before where they're kind of like tying in the sort of like big not even necessarily theme of the movie but almost sort of like image of the movie which is just this idea of something being changed or not no longer being itself having the soul yeah. taken out of it times change things yeah. change you know if inherent vice is everything you can't insure against what's what's more uninsurable than time that yeah exactly that's uh, that i definitely found myself thinking about that when she kind of like raises that question in the movie and when she's sort of like you know why would why would she have to fa- why would you know that be applicable to her and I just thought like I bet if I google this and I didn't but I was like there's no way it won't autocomplete to like why is it inherent vice what does that mean in the movie inherent vice um but I did just think of you know I was kind of thinking about it on the way over I was like oh I think it's probably just as simple as like you can't this is a person who's gonna be their own person and you can't ensure again you can't sort of like as much as we might find ourselves wanting to sometimes, like we can't control other people and what they're going to do. A hundred, a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that such a great line, you know, man, they removed any traces of soul she once had. It's a horror story. Mm -hmm. And isn't that like, that's so much, I think of what, let's, let's drill down into Shasta. We'll just, we'll just, we'll get Shasta out of the way now. Um, that's to me so much of what Doc's relationship with Shasta is, is that she was one thing. She was one person and 
she changed. Right. Either, you know, in, in the book, it's a bit more clear that time did kind of change her, that she wanted to be an actress in Hollywood. And that's that's an old story that usually goes one way, and it's not great for that type of character. And that the, the Manson murders really had an effect on her and her friends who were kind of, kind of free love hippie gals. And the post-Manson in Los Angeles has not been kind to Shasta and has changed Shasta. And I think that there's a made a a darker kind of more bitter Shasta than the one you know as as Doc clearly you know he remembers a a, a gal with a um you know a bottom half of a flower print bikini and a country joe and the fish t-shirt now here she is hair uh in flatland gear hair a lot shorter than she uh, than she swore it would ever get and I think that Doc is a hero and I think Doc is an extraordinarily moral character but I also think he's very blind when it comes to Shasta and there's a there's a beat in the second half of this sequence when it when it kind of fades away like one of those great gorgeous PTA dissolves it fades away from the more political historical detective story to just the the lovey-dovey personal drama with doc almost kind of in a frenzy when he finds out that wolfman was on the on the fang he's a, he's a, you know he's just desperate to find out was was, was Shasta on the ship but more importantly was she tossed off which is a weird thing to toss out. Is right. Like, you know, did anything to fall off the side? You know, right. my ex old. And uh, it's interesting to me that in this scene, and again, I think he means well, and I am not dogging my man Doc, who I love and adore. It's interesting that he is only able to perceive her as a victim. Right. And not someone who's on the fang by choice. And not someone who's with Mickey Wolfman and wants to be treated the way she is treated, as we find out later in that extraordinarily harrowing scene, that maybe that's what she wanted at that time. That clearly that every, there's no sense that Shasta did anything, didn't do anything that wasn't of her volition. And so it's, I find that that's a very interesting angle to see Doc's perception of her is that he looks at her as someone to be someone to be saved, that she didn't choose to be on the Golden Fang. And I think that's one of the things that Doc has the hardest time reconciling in this film. And you see it later when he and Coy are at the Topanga Canyon party house. And Coy says, and I should get this right since it's my goddamn show, but I'm going to get it a little wrong. It was like, you know, Coy's like, you know, I think people, they always need to hear things out loud because it's, it's, what, it's what they're thinking but afraid to say. And he's like, you need to talk to Shasta Faye. <laughs> and, like, Doc just starts having, like, almost mm-hmm. like a seizure right. right there at the table. It's like, I don't think he's able to recognize that she might be a part of this, that she might not be the counterculture gal he thought she was, that she, you know, we later find she's the reason that Coy... She's the person that introduced Koi to the Fang to mm. get him clean. It's made much more explicit in the book. But Doc can't see these things. And so much of this scene for me is Doc really recognizing that he loves her, but he maybe doesn't know her. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it right and and you see also Benicio has that super I mean, he has so many of his line readings in this in this scene. I mean, in the whole movie, but in this scene are like He's got some great capital M mother. Top 10 line readings of all time. Like so many amazing line readings. His return to pictures. Um, (laughs) But when 
he asks about, you know, he sort of brings up his, no, my ex, old, Ch- old Chasta Fay, and Benicio kind of has the, like, you know. But you left all that sad bullshit Yes, behind. exactly. Like, the that so many friends have been in that position oh, before yeah, where yeah, it's like yeah. somebody is like, I'm just asking, I'm just wondering, are they Dude, happy? Are they, what the, are they? Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm genuinely you, wondering. Is she, are they Dude, happy at the job? Are they whatever? You know yes, she exactly. Hurt you, man. Right. And who she, is she dating? <laughs> I mean, I don't even care, but, you know, I it's such a universal thing. It's such a universal experience. But it is almost it makes does make me think of horror movies or a horror story in the sense of like in a weird way it's like somebody that's so determined that there must be a supernatural paranormal or like brainwashing explanation for just like she just doesn't dig you that much anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's that yeah. simple. But that's the thing is Shasta does dig Doc. Right. But I think I think that I think They've Shasta grown apart. I think well I also think she has a much firmer grasp on what they are or what they were. Right. And maybe a less idealized. And, you know, we'll get into this when the scene actually happens. But, you know, I think a big part of the sex scene that a lot of people have have trouble digesting is I think in a weird way it's almost her saying, this is actually who I am. Is this the kind of girl you... She even says, you know, what kind of girl you want, Doc? You know, and I think that this was almost her saying, this is the Shasta Faye that exists. This is not the girl that you pine for. This isn't the girl you're looking out into the gunmetal blue twilight at the beginning of this movie thinking about. <laughs> I'm the actual woman in orange flatland gear that came in your front door when you were idealizing me out the window. And I do think that that's such... I think part of this story is about how you can not see what's right in front of you right. until it's too late. And I don't think that Doc and Shasta's relationship is a horror story, but I do think it's a sad story. Right. And I think it's a big part of this film, just as Doc is uncovering all of these layers upon layers of mystery and, 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 and paranoia and conspiracy, I think it's him getting... It's What what makes me love this film is it's a, it's a detective story about a guy sifting through the wreckage uh, and the and uh, the murder scene of his relationship, and just getting to the heart of it and realizing what killed it, and it was it was like no, it, was, it just died of natural causes. No one killed it, and but in this scene he can't see that. And 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 what I also love about this scene is, as I said, this is where PTA and Pinchon meet. This is the scene where the central metaphors of both stories meet. The the romance and Shasta, the relationship with Shasta Faye of the PTA version, and the more, boy, we fucked it up, didn't we? Right. Elements of Pynchon, and they come and they sit down at the table together. Or am I, am I crazy? I, 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 you're more qualified to say than I am because you've actually read the book, <laughs> so I'll take your word for it, but I believe it, but I also like, it's very clean, the idea that like, one of them digs one part of the metaphor, and it's almost yeah. a way to get to the other part, whereas the other person likes that part as a way to get to... And here, this, the love is, thing. this is where they both hang out, right? Which is why I love this scene, but I also feel like because it is so exposition heavy. Yes, this feel this is the this is the scene when you're trying to show this to some friends and some son of a bitch. This is where they take out their cell phone and they're like, "I'm just I'm just checking. I'm just checking my I'm just checking the news. Whatever." This is this is one of those scenes I think that's a tune out for a lot of people because it's too much information. It's just plot stuff anyway. FBI stuff. <laughs> FBI right. stuff. That's all I need to know. Which is so funny because right in the middle of it, you kind of have the key to the whole movie, which is or a key to the whole movie, which is just the I, the sort of like, she's not just a boat. She's much so more much more than that. that. And also, I got obsessed with the idea when I was rewatching. I watched the movie and then I rewatched the scene a few times that just saying boat dock is a pun. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so many oh, puns. In the, it was so almost many like things we discover on this show. This so, there are so many episode. puns in in the scene specifically that then saying boat that at like, boat dock was a, wow. is itself a pun, and they're in a nautical themed restaurant. It was. I am never gonna see this scene the same <laughs> way again. Here, I thought I was clever with to kill a zombie mm. and uh, ill travel. To, right, you're bringing boat dock. Oh, this, <laughs> son of a bitch. But yeah, as we were saying. I, I, I keep coming back to that line, man, they removed any traces of mm-hmm. she once had. Right. To, that so keys in with that the the sadness and the melancholy vibe and as as we were saying, the inherent vice of time. That right. time is time is inherent vice as avatar. Time changes everything. You can't stop that and you can't ensure against it. Right. And not to get super depressing or anything, because Do we it. we are really like two stoners in the middle of the night in our dorm (laughs) the way we're talking I feel like when the music's over by the doors should be spinning on a turntable (laughs) you know skipping at the same part as we're like madness is very close to genius (laughs) but um, man they removed any traces of soul she once had isn't that right now doesn't that don't you just look around at everything maybe I'm just it's because I'm getting old if, if somehow the total annihilation of our species is avoided and people in the future are hearing this particular episode. It's being recorded during a rather contentious primary for the Democratic Party in what is going to be a very rough year for our country. And that phrase, they removed any traces of soul she once had, is kind of where I feel like our country is right now. And maybe that's my own Pinchonesque idealism. Maybe it's been that way for a long, long, much longer than than I can remember because I've always just been comfortable and, and privileged, and so maybe I just didn't recognize it until now. But that's what everything feels like. That everything has become corrupted and compromised and stripped of the meaning and the goodness that I once took for granted. That's where I feel like we are right now, and I feel I feel that more and more when I watch this scene. Yeah, I. I... I think then I would counter that with almost like, and this is maybe like countering cynicism with like more cynicism that I don't actually mean to be as cynical as it sounds. <laughs> but I do think you have to then think about the this idea with the pension thing of like, but is it is it about the death of a dream or is it about that there never was one to begin with? You know what I mean? And I don't wow, mean that to we say like- we are getting doors right you know, Yeah, yeah, like, right, exactly. Uh, but I do right think now. like when you think about- and I say this as somebody who has genuine patriotic feelings. I think there are so many things that I genuinely love about America, both as a place and an idea. Like, I, I actually feel that way. But you also look at sort of the legacy of this country's founding and sort of how, you know, economically and, and, and constitutionally it was like in slavery was enshrined within it. You know, like all of these, you know, sort of... Um, you know, manifest destiny and 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 taking land away from and, and ways of life away from from native people, and it was kind of the same thing at the same time. And you just go a little bit like, oh, we don't even have like just one original sin. Like we have so many of them, right? <laughs> we have a constant. We're lousy with original sins, and I think like, and this is why I'm I'm a genuine believer in like that's why America is like an idea, and it is something that is like. It's not about being just capital G good. It's about striving to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do so. I, I do think in a weird way, it's like there is something almost kind of refreshing <laughs> to me or bracing in a weird way about 
that in in recognizing maybe it's never been it wasn't this shining city on a hill that's now become defiled maybe it's kind of always been a cyclical striving towards greatness and then getting sucked back into the muck and then hopefully re-emerging we'll see i don't know if it's like a thing that is cycling but the cycles are headed in one direction i don't know i can't say we'll find out (laughs) sit watch this space this will be the first place you hear about it this podcast but do you know what i mean i know exactly no no i exactly i i I do hope though that we are not trending downward with that spiral right or i hope it's not a spiral yes um Oh, but God, yeah, I no, I, I I totally understand what you mean, and I also think that there's something to what we were discussing earlier, and it was a big part of Drew McQueenie's episode when he was saying you gotta you gotta almost let go of the big picture goodness that you want to try to achieve against the dark because the dark is so big and so vast. You want to do something gigantic against it, and he's like, Doc understands that that's not the way you do it. Doc understands that you can't do it. You get caught up doing that. And that uh, I'm going to get him, I'm going to misquote him slightly, but Drew said, you know, it's in, it's in, in incohate times such as ours that it's, that's when the little decencies matter the most because mm, those are- Goddamn. I love Drew. He's the best. He's a writer. Yeah. Come on. Uh, because in times like those and times like, which means times like these, unfortunately, not only are the little decencies the only things- that are within our grasp right. as, as, as people, but in some ways they mean so much more than some broad big gesture as much as a broad big gesture would be great. Um, the little decencies are what we can do. And if, you know, and I, this is going to get super cheesy, but if enough of them are committed, enough of them are committed to, that is what makes us better and that's what kind of pulls us out of that spiral and brings us to the better part of the loop. And I think that that is something that Doc and you know, I, I feel so guilty talking about this fictional character. You know, I feel bad about talking about how he sees Shasta because I want everyone to love him so much. But I do think that that is a good thing about Doc, a thing that he recognizes is that the little decency is worth doing because that's the only thing he can do. Doc understands, and I love that he understands maybe more than a, a regular viewer or a, a, someone new to this film might understand. You know, you go into this movie and you want to see him take down the fan. You want to see him burn it of all course, down. Of course, of course, of course. You want to see him yeah. walk walk away, lighting a match as it explodes slow-mo behind him from Dust Till Dawn style, right. Desperado style. No, he he knows before the audience is that, oh, no, I'm, I don't even know. I don't know who runs the fang. I don't know what the fang is. I You get the sense the, that- They don't even know. Well, exactly, exactly. And you get the sense that Doc, Doc by the end of the, end of the movie- I don't know that Doc could define the thing to us. <laughs> no, not certainly not nearly as well as right. Jay does in her mm-hmm. wonderful monologue. It's a it's a it's a vertical package integrated. Oh, she's so funny. Um, what a great character. Wonderful performance. Wonderful character. Nothing but pure exposition, and you never think about it once. But Doc understands. I can do this one good thing. I can I can prevent, not even not even permanently prevent, but I can I can forestall the little kid blues. Yeah. Of this one little girl mm. who's eventually going to get him anyway because she's growing up in the 1970s. Right. It's not going to be great. <laughs> Just sure. Heads up, Amethyst. Read Nixonland, everybody. You're in for a rough right. ride, little Amethyst. But for right now, right. for right now, and there's something so, for all of this depressive shit that we're talking about, uh, there is something so romantic about that notion that I know that life is going to crush this kid anyway. Doc knows that life is going to crush this kid anyway but he can't let 
it happen as long as it's on his watch. He's got to do the one little decency so that, you know, what happens after that, that's the inherent vice of time. Right. But for right now, he's going to keep one little girl from being stripped of all the soul that she has. And that kills me. That gets to me. Yeah, I I love movies where, or stories in general, where it's like you do have that conclusion of like, I can't, the big thing is like too big or it's whatever, but I can, I this one thing is in my control because it also feels like actually a, an incredibly important, not that we should only be watching art that p- to purely affirm what we already believe or whatever, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But I do think, because also there's not that many actually effective morals or things you can communicate in, mm-hmm. in movies. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe that's really what they're for. But like, I do think you can, that's a really important takeaway that I do really like. And I also, I love... It's almost like in this movie, it's like it's kind of a little bit about and it's about a lot of things. It's about getting older and it's kind of about like, what do you want to how do you want to get older? Do you want to sort of get older by you can you're going to get old no matter what. So the versions of getting older from being a sort of like hippie saxophonist, whatever, you can go one way and you can completely sell out and be involved in turning all of your friends into the authorities and kind of, you know, or you can get older in the sense of like, hey, I'm going to maybe only have one partner and we're going to raise a kid together and I'm just going to try my best to be a good dad. Exactly. And that's like in many ways. I, a younger version of me might have considered that equally selling out or equally sort mm-hmm. of getting, you know, lame and mellow and old. But I think it's sort of like viewing that inherent vice, viewing that in inevitability and going like, OK, I'm not in control of this. I'm being, you know, pointed toward the exit that is death ultimately. But I am in control of how I do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's yeah. like I can always do it in style if I want to. And this is the style in which I want to do it is I want to be with I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm getting older so I, I am a parent I'm going to become a parent and so I want to just try to do a good job and yeah. that's, that's all dope you can do. I love that and that's... Doc realizes that I think it wants to aid and he sees that this guy actually is like holy shit this guy actually wants to do this okay yeah. it's within my power to make that happen I yeah. love, I'm going to do it I love it because that's the one thing you can do on your right. watch that you I feel like of all the choices Doc can make in this film by the time it gets to that point that's the one that he can not regret. Yes. Of all of them, the, he can he can give the Fangs heroin back to them right. and take a payout uh, and then hate himself for it. Uh, but we know he's not going to do that because he was, he's already rejected 300 bucks from the FBI uh, to be a COINTELPRO informant. He could maybe use, he could be a real, you know, real controlling Wolfman-esque kind of asshole and use his sway, newfound sway with the Fang to say, hey, I want, I want Shasta out. I want her out. I want her left alone. Where even if she wants to be with you guys, I want her out. She's mine, and he doesn't do that either. He just he's like, you know, it's that great scene I mentioned. People that listen to the show are probably so sick of this because I bring up this scene every goddamn time. <laughs> it's him sitting at his kitchen table with sword liege and saying, "Little kid blues saxophone players." That's what's gonna haunt him when this is all said and done. And so he does, he does the one thing to prevent being haunted, and that's to get this dad out and get this family back together. And all the other stuff, people who are confused by the, this, about this movie, it's all window dressing. Yeah, it's yeah. All, it, but actually, you know what? I want to take that back. I, I say that a lot about how this is, hey, when you watch a neo-noir detective movie, forget the plot. The plot's just getting the detective in a room so that a pretty girl with a gun can can put him on his path. What's so amazing about Inherent Vice is that, yes, you can ignore most of the plot. You cannot remember why Tariq Khalil 
wanted uh, Doc to investiga- investigate Glenn Sherlock at Ch- at uh, Channel View Estates. You can forget that, and you can forget that Mickey Wolfman wanted to get all give all of his money and property away for free because he had a moral awakening with acid, and that's when the uh, you know the Fang and the FBI all realized, oh no 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 no, he's got to we got to reprogram him. But if he wants to give his money away, put him on the strip, and we'll have him fight, we'll have him bankroll and all that shit. You don't need it to get to where PTA wants you to be, I think. But what makes this movie special is you can watch Night Moves and you can cut a lot out of Night Moves. And you can watch Chinatown. I don't I don't know why you'd want to do this, but you could cut a lot of Chinatown out and still the movie makes sense. But a little bit like Chinatown, but so much more intense, I think, all of these little things, all these little bits of plot, the the Wolfman stuff, the Golden Fang stuff, it's all so thematically resonant to what we're talking about and to where this movie, everything is vibrating with the same atomic frequency. Yes. It all <laughs> belongs together. And if you are willing to go the extra mile, and believe me, as a person who is hosting a fucking podcast about this show, <laughs> I will say I've gone an extra mile or sure, two. Mile plus, yes, absolutely. It does pay off because every single element of this thing is wedded to every other thing yes. in this film like the Pinchonian uh, det- Shaggy Dog detective mystery plot A and B and C and E and D and F and Z and G and H they're all they're all separate but they're all going towards the same place and they're all built with the same stuff and that's just I think that's a goddamn miracle of it's again. It's one of those genius things where it's like you ask PT, "How did you do this? Like, how did you? Ad- how did you do it?" Oh, geez, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I just tell a story about a guy and a girl. And it's in the seventies. <laughs> like I mean, it's in the seventies, and he shrugs. Right. But uh, yeah, and and when you, and it's everything that's in this scene that I think a casual viewer would ignore the the fishing boat named Preserved, owned by Burke Stodger. This, this Preserved conservative. Uh, let's no. See. You know, now he is. Oh, God. Do you hear? Very good. But that you have Burke Stodger, this this leftist 1940s, 50s actor who gets blacklisted and heads out, escapes America on the left coast, mm-hmm. shows oh, up on the that. right coast, right. Uh. shows back up on the right political end of the spectrum starring in films like Kami Confidential right. which we get a great clip of uh, later in the film uh, ardently decrying the red menace and you know even that it's even even Burke Stodger's weird little story that is quite literally hanging over this scene as his photograph so funny that is, it's right hanging, that it's right there is so great you know which is and you know I love the way like you notice Sanch nods at it when he, as if he was. I love that this is maybe a dramatic flourish on Sanch's part that he insisted on this seat, yes. but quite literally and figuratively, the story of Burke Stodger hangs over this conversation, and even that that even that is so resonant and adds such a layer of meaning about how how dreams can be betrayed, how movements can be betrayed. And once again, it's that question, is this COINTELPRO? Is this counterculture? Is this, you know, and, and, and realizing that as they're talking about Burke Stodger, they're really talking about Coy Harlingen, who did the exact same thing. It, I'm getting dizzy 
I'm getting dizzy mm-hmm. as, I, as I'm saying all this because it is it is so overwhelming. But I, I, I do feel like this scene is so representative of what this what makes this film magical in that, A, it this scene doesn't look like anything magical at all, which I think a lot of casual viewers, you look at this movie, it's people sitting around at tables mm-hmm. talking about right. stuff. It's just a lot of talking. Right. Um, but it is also so latticed with thematic resonance and meaning if you take the time to just sit and let the scene talk mm-hmm. and let it talk out the way we're talking. Although it'll make a lot more sense than I'm making right now. <laughs> because I, 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 I do swear to all of you, we're not high. I swear to I God, know. Again, we're not I have to high. emphasize. Um, but no, but that is why it just really, to me, it does come down to like, this is almost the like center of the movie and the center of the scene and the center of the whole movie is to me is Benicio saying, she's so much more than a boat. Or, you know, she's not just a oh, boat. She's so much more than that. What a perfect bit of casting. Even though he's already played a stoned detective- Lawyer. Or detective, excuse me. Yeah, a stoned lawyer. Right, somebody's lawyer. Somebody's stoner lawyer. A a weird, skinny, Uh drugged up protagonist, unreliable protagonist. So funny. Nothing is funnier than like stoner characters having like very important jobs. The fact that (laughs) the fact that Doc Sportello is a doctor, like an actual doctor. He's not a doctor. Doctor. (laughs) He's a he's a Steely Dan doctor. (laughs) He's a Steely Dan. He was he was he he does he does work in a doctor feel good office. Um, and that he's a and that that uh, uh, Smilex is a lawyer is so fucking fun. And, a, and a maritime lawyer. Maritime, maritime law. And then that will eventually play in in the fact that oh the whole movie is going to hinge on a boat is so great. It's convenient. No? Absolutely. Oh, that, that pension. He's a smart guy. Absolutely. <laughs> he's got he's got his moments. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, he know he he knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And I do love you know speaking of that the entrusting someone high to do anything serious. I love the so lowbrow joke in the next scene of Sanch having to get a hold of Doc to let him know, hey, we know where Shasta's at. And it's just, you just hear him smoking a bong on the phone. <laughs> just, <laughs> is it, it's a, come on, ha, you people. Oh, I say you people. Anyone listening to this show is right. obviously Already damaged and is in, on my wavelength. But the people who don't love this movie, God, yeah. they're missing out. I they're know. They really are. Yeah, so it's so, much. it really is a, uh, 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 it's a wonderful uh, uh, thematic playground. Uh, but also, hey, what was I going to say about, Oh, there was another, there's almost another weird stoner joke to me in what I think is just a pretty normal thing that movies do where it's like, okay, the conversation there is, is happening. They're out on this dock, you know, they're looking at the boat. Um, and then it just like, he's like Burke Stodger and then it just hard cuts to inside the restaurant. And then he's like Burke Stodger, they're still having this, which in this, which is, which happens in movies and you don't really notice it. Although it's the kind of thing that one of those like snarky YouTube videos are probably like, Oh, this is a weird mistake or something. But in this case, it's, you just kind of don't notice it for the most part. But in this movie, it almost feels like a weird joke where it's like, Oh, like doc just that just bubbled up to the surface for him like they went on and they talked about a bunch of other stuff and then they were sitting there and he just ended up being like wait burke's dodger the actor and it was like we were talking about that 10 minutes ago that never we've been talking about the dodgers since then i always see that cut and i just thought it you know i always think oh it's pta being clever like we know it's a movie right and he's already doing some weird jump cutty stuff you know with sort of liege throughout the film Mm. and i was like you know, I got in, in there's there's an earlier scene, uh, the scene where Doc meets Penny on the bench. 
that was supposed to be at a luncheon, a little diner, mm. and he got bored. PT got bored. He didn't like it. He, right. He, and he's like, fuck it. There's a bench right outside. I can mm. quit doing these over-the-shoulder back and forth. Sure. I can quit doing the two-shot coverage. We could just go sit you right there. I'll do a slow push-in. We'll, we'll knock this thing out in an hour. And I almost viewed that cut as like, oh, he was probably just bored. He didn't want to shoot on the dock anymore. He's like, well, let's just get us to, uh, you know, let's get to the diner. We got to get to the diner. You know, let's we'll get to the belaying pin. And but I love the idea <laughs> that they're laying on the dock. D O C K. That's right. They're laying on the dock. God bless you for pointing out that pun. Ah, oh, boat dock. <laughs> so this goddamn movie. Um, they're laying on the dock. They're looking at the thing, and uh, yeah, uh, Sanch mentions, yeah, it belongs to, to, to Burke's Dodger. And then, as you said, they just start talking about the Dodgers, and then they go get lunch. <laughs> and from Sanch's point of view, two hours have passed, and out of nowhere, yeah, he just screams, Burke's Dodger? The actor? <laughs> it's perfect to me. Also completely unrelated to anything, but I'll feel bummed if we don't uh, shout her out. Great Jillian, Jillian Bell, Bell Reed is the Jillian waiter. Bell. Who's I he, didn't even realize it was her. I I was just like, oh, that's this waitress is her so head is funny. Cut off half of I know the scene. exactly. You have to yeah, squint. It's like, right. Jillian Bell, such a funny performance. It's your stomach. Yeah, and so it really to me it felt less this way the more I rewatched it. But I remember even feeling like the first time around, just being like, oh, this is so in this world. You know mm. what I mean? Like this just feels right for this world that there's just a like over it. It feels very '60s, early '70s to me. I don't know why that there would be this waitress who you just go and it's not even sort of like a diner. Like I'm kind of giving you the business a little bit. She's truly just like disgust you. She's not even just <laughs> disgusted by you and the food. She's acknowledging like we're all disgusted by it. You know what I mean? It's just so funny to me. Oh my god. Yeah, the the, the, the cranky beachside uh, waitress mm-hmm. who will later give. Uh, given the timeline, we can assume that she'll give birth to Lori Petty's character in Point Break, an equally cranky, uh, Patrick's <laughs> equally cranky uh, uh, waitress uh, at a beachside diner. I don't know where I'm going with that. I just like to bring up Point Break any any chance. I, I also like that they're in San Pedro, right? Yeah. And yet, which again, t- talking about douchebags talking about LA geography, you really really far me. away from you, Hollywood. You couldn't pay. Really me. really far away from Hollywood, and it's I love it's such a funny to me like almost like LA or Southern California joke that it's like San Pedro is very very far away from. I mean, it's in the same sort of like major metropolitan area, but it's very far away. And the fact that they still have the, like, Hollywood sort of, like, stars pictures on the wall is so (laughs) funny to me. It's so great. But it's also the kind of thing that I would only really think about if I rewatch the movie and then rewatch the same scene four times. It's one of those things when I watch an L.A. movie and they do that, I get so pissed off. I mean, I'm like, I get for narrative expediency. You know, we can't just have our characters sitting there for five hours as they drive out to, you know, Torrance. Like, the Harlingens live out in fucking Torrance. Right. You can't have a movie where your doc is just sitting there driving to Torrance. But what I, I will allow it, I'll allow it. What an asshole thing. <laughs> I'm cool with it in this movie because I could see Doc just getting high and spacing out and just being totally cool with driving to Torrance. Yes, that he and, would just he almost just teleports there in his in his mind. Well, he's got sore leash. Right. She's always just, yep. just popping around here. Mm-hmm. But no, I just like I I totally get Doc as a guy. He'd, he'd be like, yeah, I could drive out there. Sure, he's got a nice car. Why not? <laughs> and I I buy it with Doc. I mm-hmm. buy that he's someone's like, yeah, I'll drive up to Ojai, wear a wig. Why not? I'll do it. <laughs> Go see, you know, see a guy with a swastika on his face. Right. I'll, fi- I'll find him out. I'll, I'll feel it out. <laughs> and then I'll drive to San Pedro. It's like five fucking hours away. I'll believe it in this movie. I'll believe it. <laughs> also, it was the 70s, so I believe the traffic wasn't as bad. Yeah, it was, you know, it's probably a little bit easier, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. God, what a time. What a time. What a time. Things, see? 
things just get things worse. Things change. Th- things just... Th- you can't insure against traffic getting worse. <laughs> what a moment. Yeah, you know what? We got it in there. <laughs> That's, it doesn't get better than that. It oh, Bless your heart. Now, I will say this is a very food-heavy, very food-heavy yes. scene. And because of that, I'm going to make a ham-handed segue. Ham hands, ham food. See? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Professionals, right there, right look, at us. look at me and you. Absolutely. Look at us. Uh, as we as we as we walk away together from the the dining table at the belaying pin here, uh, where we've wa- we're getting ready to see our characters eat. You, sir, are striking out on a new endeavor, and I want you to talk to us about it. Yes, I'm starting a podcast called Stay for Dinner, which is going to be a podcast of cooking and comedy. Well, not really comedy. I mean, it's it'll be funny, but well, my be cooking like... would be comedy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But as I'm saying, uh, mostly because it's alliterative cooking, curiosity, and conversation, and it's basically a podcast all about home cooking, which is something I, I love. I'm a uh, author and comedian, but also a, an enthusiastic home cook, and I want to kind of share that with people, and on the show, I'm literally going to be like cooking like on on the show, and so you can kind of like cook along at home, but then re- the real sort of like main uh, meat, uh, if you will, the main protein of every episode oh, is a uh, conversation with um, somebody that I have over to my apartment, and we eat the food, and mostly off mic, because that's a separate feed that you have to pay extra for, uh, <laughs> that ASMR of uh, us making smacking noises with our mouths, and then we mostly talk about how bad the traffic was during that part, oh, uh, and then we, when we get back on mic, we talk about um, cooking and food and, and anything that home cooking and food are related to, which is literally everything. Um, and if, uh, if you like cooking, if you don't like it, if you don't know how you feel about it, cause you never tried it, this is, this is going to be the show for you. I'm super excited about it. So I think, not sure exactly when this comes out, but I will be getting the feed up for it in, in a couple of days here. So I think it should be that up should to I... at least subscribe to by the time this yes, comes out. Yes, I believe your show will be. So yes, the feed will be up yes by people the time you this can episode, there'll uh, be a trailer premieres. up and you can subscribe and it will be up there and then uh the first episode should be coming out in early march and then there will be the separate patreon account for like the smacking and the, yes the, exactly the, for the, the tra- asmr and, and, yes and the for the food talk, asmr the, and traffic talk you have yeah. to pay extra for it. well you know what it's a friday night it's fucking raining outside it's gonna take us 40 minutes to get to where we live <laughs> because of this traffic i'm getting dinner in Korea oh, my wife and i are going out in Korea. oh you want to take me? <laughs> I think we, uh, yes, is the answer. Hey, I'm, daddy's getting some <laughs> Korean BBQ tonight. All right. On that note, DC, thank you so much for coming. Thanks on. for having me, Travis. Thank it was you so for fun. talking about this movie. My pleasure. And indulging my madness. This was a lot. Y- y- it's not your madness. You're just part of it. You're just a part of the madness of Inherent Vice. Oh, we're getting deep again. You know? Oh, pass, pass the joint. Let's, let's go. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. I really look forward to hearing your show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure to come back next time where myself and a very special guest are going to have ourselves a harvest with Mr. Neil Young. Boy, oh boy. Steely Dan, Donald Trump, nautical puns, movie references, PTA versus pension, food jokes. If ever there was an episode of Increment Vice that matched the sheer metric tonnage of its scene's atomic density, it's this one. Thanks to DC for leading us through it. And be sure to listen out for his cooking podcast. Maybe he'll even whip up a couple jellyfish teriyaki croquettes for us all. Will our stomachs be able to handle it? Will they come deep fried in beer batter? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.